Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work with me. I'm Bruce Aisley. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Thank you for joining. And it's a really lovely episode today. I think a lot of people have been wrestling over the last few months with how to bring their workplace culture back together. Well, while we're in this sort of interim limbo stage of being fully from home, we recognise that we just needed to suck it up. Now we're back in the office. Everyone has increasingly been vocalising a, a, a desire to get work culture back going again. And that's why today's guest is such a, a timely uh, conversation. Dan Coyle is the author of The Culture Code, probably one of the best books about workplace culture. And probably the, the reason why Dan's work is so outstanding is he gets this incredible opportunity to go inside really elite organisations like Pixar, sport organisations like the San Antonio Spurs, Navy Seals, goes inside these organisations to try and understand their culture and understand the some of the decisions that have contributed to that culture. He's got a brand new book out now, which is really sort of drawing on the success of the, the Culture Code. It's turning it into something of a workbook. So it's one of those books you can imagine halfway between a journal and an exercise book where you're given prompts and you're asked to, to put things in. I'd strongly recommend if anyone's interested in his work that you start with the Culture Code. But this new uh, Culture Playbook is most definitely something that will be helpful if you want to sort of work through some of these t- things with your team. So a uh, great opportunity to chat to him, especially since the, in the few years since he published his, his book in 2018, there's obviously been a transformation in the way we're working. Uh, such an honour to chat to someone who is on speed dial with some of the biggest organisations in the world. So really great conversation. If, you, if you're wrestling with how to bring some of the life back to your culture, uh, then this conversation with Dan Coyle will be great. Here we go. Here's Dan Coyle. Dan, thank you so much for, for coming back to the podcast. I'm, I'm so thrilled to talk to you, actually. It's great to be back with you at this moment in time where we're talking about all this stuff. It seems like it's bubbling up everywhere. Exactly that, because, you know, that's why I say sort of great to talk to you at this moment, actually, because I just want to ask this question that seems to be well, fundamental to where we are right now. And, and that's sort of a question. Mm. How important do you think culture and workplace culture is right now? Yeah, I think it's, 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 I think we're all sort of wrestling with its place in our lives, right? The last two years have allowed us to zoom out and, and look at our lives from a slightly different point of view. And so I think um, it becomes more important than ever because we've all had this collective realization that, well, there's really good ways to do this and there's really bad ways to do this. And, and we're living our lives and want to have kind of happy, flourishing lives filled with well-being. And we want to have jobs that support that, not the other way around. And um, having a, a good culture seems like 
a strong culture, a healthy culture, a culture where you can bring your whole self to work, a culture that listens, a culture that is two-way, and above all, a culture that can adapt to the changes that the world is bringing is, I'd say, more important than ever. You know, it used to be kind of, you know, an eon ago, meaning two and a half years ago, you would just sort of show up at work and do your job. That world seemed very fixed. And now we've gotten this glimpse of different ways we can interact and different ways we can arrange ourselves. And to me, that cultural piece of that is asking the question, how are we going to work together? What is, what is it going to mean when we work together? Where are we all headed? And to me, those are very, very pertinent questions to be, to be wrestling with. Here's why I, I sort of asked the question now. I got an email from someone today. He, he said something that I think is really intriguing. He said, he said, look, he's really noticed that workers who joined during the pandemic and workers who are younger to the organization are showing a very different energy to the ones who came before. And it really struck me that in the culture code, you talk about how right at the outset, you talk about how culture, good cultures you've witnessed. You often find yourselves in the room, in a room where you witness this sort of close physical proximity, physical touch, humor, attentiveness, energetic exchanges. And a lot of those things have been people looking in each other's eyes. And a lot of those things have been stripped from us in the last two years. And I just wonder, firstly, has that been at the expense that culture has been damaged? But secondly, is there a danger that a whole generation of workers, a whole cohort of workers have joined something that they, because they've not perceived that closeness, maybe they don't feel the need for that closeness. And they might look at you, me and others and say, actually, I, I want work to be more transactional. I don't need this artificial bonhomie that connects me with people. I've asked so much there. So let's go through that. Firstly, sort of, do you do you think anything has changed in the, the dynamic of culture during the pandemic? You know, I, I think I, I love this question, and, and there really are two schools of thought, and that are that are responding to this today among people who are studying this, and people who are who are trying to lead culture in this environment, and and like some of the people you've talked to, two schools of thought. School number one: things are broken. Uh, there's no way we're going to go back. People realize they just want a transactional job. Um, there's no way we're going to get people back in the workplace after they've tasted this freedom of being able to work from home, um, and it's it's going to be very fractured and different and the glass is less than half empty. School number two is this was more like an interruption and an awareness bringing period of time. And when people realize that the learning and the peer interactions that go on at work, they'll realize they can't get that at home and they will go back to the office at some level um, and this group, this generation that has been onboarded during this time will gradually learn and adapt um, to this world, whether that's three days in and two days off during the week or two days at home, a hybrid workplace, or whether that slowly becomes more of the physical workplace all the time. Um, and I tend to fall in the second school. You know, in the last few months, we've seen big companies like Microsoft start to bring people back um, three days a week, four days a week. Uh, and what you see in those environments, and I was out at one uh, two weeks ago uh, in Seattle, is this kind of reawakening that, yes, there were some things about work that were broken, and there are some things that probably should be more transactional. But there is this genuine thrill, human thrill, of being with your peers in an environment where you're kind of learning and growing. 
And it really puts the onus on, I think, companies that are going to succeed and cultures that are going to succeed in this, in this environment are going to be put their focus on, on growth, on learning, on giving people the, something that they can't get anywhere else. Um, and in many businesses, that is, you know, it hinges on being physically present and being this sort of apprenticeship model where you are around people and learning from people and being mentored by people that help you get better. And that's a juice. That's a, that's a thing that, that people still crave. And so I tend to think that um, it isn't the case that there is this sort of broken generation that will never be able to go back and adapt. And, and I think that that adaptation will happen. I think it'll happen in a slightly better way because I think the gift of the last two years has been perspective um, and has been wait a minute, there are really certain jobs that are better done by myself at home. And there's certain domains where we really should be physically together and we'll all get a lot more out about that. So what we come away with is a, is a higher degree of, you know, this was basically a reflection period of two years and you can't learn without reflection. And, and it's, it's enabled us to see things a little bit more clearly. And hopefully when we do go back, it'll be with that much more intention and that much more purposefulness and that much more clarity around what we're there to do together. So when you've, you've been so fortunate that, and your, the, the respect of your work has, has got you into some incredible rooms, incredible buildings, incredible environment. If you were going to characterize what good culture looks like. And I know that's incredibly reductive. What are the things that you would say when you're thinking about good culture? They generally look like this. They generally look like this. Are there any things that stand stand out? They do. There's functions, really. You know, when we usually talk about culture, we talk about these abstractions like values and integrity and teamwork. And those are all abstract concepts. Let's look at it. If you x-rayed a great culture, right? If you had a machine that could x-ray the behaviors, forget words, just the behaviors, you'd see three types of behaviors. The first type you'd see is this connective behavior that creates safety, right? That's the type of behavior. The second type of behavior you'd see is one of sharing and vulnerability. So we can transfer information so I can trust what you're saying, so we can see things clearly. And then the third piece would be sort of a direction-finding function where you're trying to figure out what matters, what doesn't matter, where are we headed, what's our North Star, um, how are we going to navigate around these obstacles. So every... Entity on earth, whether it's an organism or whether it's a culture, um, a group of people has got to have those three functions. They have to have things that keep them together. They have to have things that help them share clear information and create transparency. And they have to have some direction. And, and the things that I see in this new environment evolving, I, w- I would point to three sort of categories of behavior. You know, For the connective behavior, I see a lot of groups going toward a concept that I would call deep fun. You know, we've heard about deep work, but there's a, there's a type of, of connective activity that happens in good cultures that I would call deep fun. There was a great example of it. There's a, there's a company here in the States that decided to set a team together to come up with the best single coffee and bring it back to the office in a machine, a best coffee, bring it back scour the planet, find the best bean, the best roaster, the best machine, the best oat milk, and bring it back to the office. Kind of a silly, stupid idea, but one that creates this sort of connection where you're doing solving this kind of hard problem to benefit the group. Um, and it, it creates a bit of energy around being there in the office. That kind of thing, that kind of safety creating behavior you see. 
And you also see people getting really good at signaling fallibility, you know, really saying, hey, I don't have all the answers. You know, leaders often, you know, we grew up with this idea of leadership that leaders were smarter and more infallible and they knew deep more things and had a lot of wisdom. And that doesn't work in today's environment, really, because it's moving too quickly to know things for sure, to have one person's brain hold all the important information. So you see leaders become very, very skilled at signaling fallibility and saying, hey, I need some help here. We need to have a a process and some systems where we go back over what we just did and really own it and really decide where I messed up and where you messed up and what we could do better. And the third behavior, sort of category of behavior, is pausing. I see leaders and groups getting really more skilled, ones that are successful, getting great at pausing. Modern life is not very good at giving us pauses. It just gives us more stuff to do. And so actively carving out, moving away from that channel of productivity and moving into pausing and saying, wait a minute, what are we really doing here? What can we subtract from our world and make it easier to work in? What, what, is, what, are, what are we doing that is creating friction? Where are we really headed? Um, those moments of group reflection where you're really kind of building the landscape in which you're operating and creating shared meaning around what's important and what's less important. Um, that, that's the skill. So I would say getting good at deep fund, getting good at fallibility and getting really good at pausing would be sort of a, a decent skill set for the next uh, decade. Could you quote something in the, the book? Like, I, I guess if someone's, look, if, if someone's listening to this, they're probably interested in workplace culture and, and making work more enjoyable. You quote something in the new book, which is firms that commit to deep fun and four times the profits, two times the average revenue of those who do shallow engagement. What's the source for that? And, and what does that specifically mean? Because this sounds like one of those holy grails where, you know, we are going to see the benefit of having good culture. What's, what's the origin of that data? Yeah, it's based on some work by Jacob Morgan. I did, he wrote a big article in Harvard Business Review about it where he dives into the details. But the essential distinction he is creating is between shallow fun and deep fun. Shallow is all this pleasurable stuff that we often see in an office, right? We should have ping pong machines. We have ping pong machines. We should have ping pong tables. We should have pinball machines. We should we should break for, uh, for beer at, at 5 o'clock on Thursdays. That sort of fun, which creates a bubbly, fizzy feeling of being together, is, 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 is not unvaluable, but it also creates an, a reaction that is sort of very momentary and, and not really linked. Deep fun is when you create interactions that allow members of the group to take ownership over the experience of group life. It's when you give someone a budget to redecorate their cubicle. It's when you put together a team to try to select what exercise machine or what juice machine they should get in the office. It's when the U.S. national women's soccer team decides to design their own cleats and to put the names of their heroes on the back of their jerseys instead of their own names and decides to fight for pay equality. It's when they take ownership. They're not, it's not a transactional compliant nature. It's when they're taking ownership. And the ultimate is, is of course, actual ownership. Um, it's really interesting to see companies that have employee-owned stock programs where the, the stock goes over to the employees. Um, ESOP is the word that we use in this country. And one example that I just experienced was Tony Robbins, uh, who runs, obviously, all of his motivational uh, businesses. He actually is an ESOP. He has given uh, ownership over his, of his company over to his employees, which, and it sounds very strange to say this, but I, I found out about that after having a lot of interactions with 
with his group. And you could sense something different about the group. They were simply more invested. They were simply because it was their company. They literally are in charge of it. So there is this, um, I think what this research is, is really getting at is that, that word ownership. When you can create interactions that create a sense of ownership and hopefully even real ownership, that's when you get that boost that Morgan tracked when it was um, when we talk about revenue and we talk about uh, success. And that's not really a, a, a shocking idea, right? We, we've known for generations that the best way to, to really improve is to create a sense of, of authentic ownership. And that's what Deep Fund is all about. It's so interesting what you say there, because a lot of that leads into something that some of us, if we're in big organizations, might feel the absence of. That it seems that, you know, the more you describe ownership, the more you describe authenticity, these feel like things that we're very comfortable in establishing in small groups, but often uncomfortable in the establishing in big groups. And in your observations, you know, observing teams like the San Antonio Spurs and 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 looking at high performance groups do you do you think this is something that culture doesn't necessarily easily scale and so as a consequence we should be thinking about trying to create culture in smaller groups I love that no I think you're exactly right Bruce you know things relationships don't actually scale right human relationships we know from Dunbar's number that we are capable of keeping relationships with about 150 people at any given time. When you get beyond that, it becomes, you can't really trust. You can't really know. And so it's absolutely natural that there's not a a single culture in these big organizations. What you have in successful big organizations is a bunch of microcultures. You know, the model or the metaphor is more like the ecosystem, the jungle, where there are these micro ecosystems of culture that, that do exist, these 10 people, these 20 people. And part of what about part of building a strong microculture is in attending and realizing that that's that that's the group that matters. It was just at a at an event where we bro- it was a very big company broke everybody up and then they had them create their own mantras. Like what are the what's the language that really resonates with this groups when you talk about your ambition for this for these twenty people, not for the the three thousand people that work there. And one of the groups came up with a with a mantra that was a very simple one. It was do epic shit. That was their mantra. Like that's what, and, and that, that those words would have no meaning to anyone else in the, in the company, but they have massive <laughs> meaning because there's a whole set of stories and personalities that people know in relationships in where that, that mantra is super meaningful to that group. And so that approach where you actually take time and let's attend to the people, the relationships, the safety, the vulnerability, the purpose of you know the deep fun, the pauses, uh, the, the reflection of that smaller group. There's a saying that I really like, which is "culture is the 15 feet around you." I think that gets a, an essential truth that it is it's continuous. It has to do with the signals you send and the behaviors you put in the environment, and and with the space between the people you know well. Um, and the idea that oh, we don't have a culture. That is a really common and pernicious myth. You do have a culture. The culture might be one of that's very transactional where you have decided to ignore each other, but it's there. And so the question to people is, do you want to take control over that or not? Do you want to, do you want to take some actions that help strengthen and build that microculture of which you're a part? It's really interesting though, isn't it? Because, because to take that brilliant quotation, then 
you know, and, and to extrapolate it over the last two years, then actually, you know, the absence of us being around other people might in fact have had this unintended consequence of making us feel maybe more productive, like our, our work could get done in a more considered way, but might have disconnected us a little bit from the human element of the cultures that we've previously been part of. Yeah, massively. And, and, and it's, it's inevitable, right? How, how do you feel together when you can't be together? And, and so it ends up being this really interesting challenge. And some of, the, some of the more interesting innovations that people are doing in this area are trying to kind of break down that distance now, I don't think it's ever possible to have a real relationship purely virtually. Like until they invent far better holograms, uh, it's not going to happen. Even even though with all good intentions, we're going to have a great team. We'll meet virtually once a day. No, you won't. It, it's really, really hard. So smart teams are starting to realize they need to toggle between real life and virtual. To use virtual for for product for productivity and and in person for more creative work, where you get a lot more done creatively, and to do things like normalizing conversations around mental health, you know, that's an area. You know, if a coworker came in with a sprained ankle, you would realize it, you'd see it. But mental health is exactly the same, and so a lot some groups, Genentech, uh, the tech company, they just they just did a series of videos by their leaders. Uh, that that where the leaders talked very openly and vulnerable vulnerably about their own mental health challenges, and it's called hashtag Let's Talk, and the the idea there is to normalize this, so so we're not just sort of letting that isolation happen um, without doing anything about it. We're we're sort of doing what society is doing, which is hey, um, let's let's bring that in the open, let's talk about it and deal with it together. I, I'd love to sort of. To delve into two or three of the comp- the organisations that you've had the honour to work with, and and one of the things that really struck me um, about the San Antonio Spurs and, and and Coach Popovich has just become the I think it's described as the most winningest coach in, in history. But the one thing that they spend a lot of time doing, he spends a lot of time doing, is curating these dinners, and in fact, also uh, moments where he doesn't join his leadership team, he leads them to huddle. I wonder if you could. Describe to me a couple of your experiences of witnessing such a high-performing environment like the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah, no, like I'm a basketball fan, and they were the people I was most interested in seeing. Partly because from a great distance, Coach Popovich looks like the crankiest man on the planet. You know, he's 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 155 years old, and he seems to yell a lot at his players. and And so the first day I got there, I was keenly interested because I got there on the day after they had lost a big game to their arch rival. And the first thing that Popovich did walking onto the court, he was dressed in these baggy shorts and this, this shirt from a crab shack in Maine. And he looked like a crazy uncle. He walked right over to the player who had missed the big shot the night before the player who had choked. And he put his hand on that player and he started talking to that player, not about the shot, but about the dinner that Popovich had arranged for that player and the bottle of wine Popovich had ordered. And to your point, he spends in the mid six figures on meals for his team, not because he loves to eat, he does love to eat, but because this is the space where they connect. It's this sacred space. At the end of every year, uh, every coach gets a leather-bound album of all the menus of the places they visited and the, and the wines, the wine label. And then it was time to watch some film, and I went thinking I would be seeing some game film, right? You watch the film, and you criticize, you make comments, and you get better. But when, when he pushed play, what started to play was not game film, but a documentary on the history of the Civil Rights Voting Act. 
And then Popovich created this extraordinary conversation about it. Uh, what would you have done? What, what would your parents have done? Intimate, real, curious. And the thing that you walk away with is that he is curious and entrepreneurial about connecting. He's always looking for an opportunity. Like every leader has a to-do list, right? We need to get from A to B to C. We need to get ready for the game. His ability to pause. And when I, we talked before about being great at pausing, he's great at pausing. He's great. He's always looking for an opportunity to find some connective material that will bring his team closer. There was a, there was a night right before they started to play in the NBA championships, the night before game one. And they're getting together to talk as a team. And Popovich starts talking about Eddie Mabo Day. Eddie Mabo Day is an Australian indigenous holiday named after the, the indigenous man who sued the government. And it, he's got an indigenous Australian man, Patty Mills, on the team. And he, it was Eddie Mabo Day, and so he talked about it. And Patty Mills is in tears, and he's talking to his teammates about Pat. It was the most incredible moment. Why did that happen? Because what makes Popovich great is not that he's really smart. There's a lot of coaches that are smart. Not that he's really funny. A lot of coaches are really funny. Not that he's good at connecting. A lot of coaches are really good at connecting. Um, What makes him great is his ability to pause and zoom out and say, what would connect my team right now? Right? What What would connect them? And he thinks about that in such a relentless, creative, curious way. And then he implements that. That's what makes him great. And that's what really came came to light. Uh, the more you spend time with him, the more you see him being really opportunistic about connection. I love that. And you've just given me so much more depth to a story that I already knew well, because I was thinking that, you know, any leader in this moment might be thinking the importance of getting my team back together and having, breaking bread with them, having a meal with them, whether that's a lunchtime meal or if we can't impose on people's evenings or or taking people for an evening meal. But you've gone beyond that. I think that notion of being entrepreneurial with with connecting is so valuable because I read those things that you'd, you'd written about those stories where he was imbuing a sense of purpose or he was he was uh, having an excursion into civil rights and I thought oh well that's really that's noble that you know he's brought a sense of purpose but exactly as you say there this is not specifically about him about him, him imparting his values but trying to activate a connection with him and the people he's responsible for for inspiring. So brilliant to hear you describe it. And there's a, there's a deeper thing happening now, which, you know, we talk a lot in this, in this world about sort of mindfulness and, and being tuning into the moment. I think he's always looking, I think there's something there about him too, the way he sees. He's always trying to kind of expand the present moment to be as big as possible and to connect to things that are really in the environment. You know, a lot of times as leaders, we sort of think we've got to bring something of ourselves in and, and, and impose some idea of ours on the environment. And that's not what he's doing. He's actually just like sort of laying back and keenly observing what's there. There's his player. He's an indigenous Australian. What, I wonder what holidays they have. Oh, it's today. Like, like that is simply paying deep attention to now. And, and that I think is an underrated skill. And as a, for a leader, it's sort of in a weird way, it's easier in, in a weird way, it's easier to sort of say, I'm going to pay attention to now and make now as rich and connective as possible, as opposed to I'm going to have a 16-point plan to connect my team and I'm going to execute that plan. You know, the second is pretty exhausting. The first is actually pleasurable. You know, and, and so to look at connection as not as this task to click off your list or this, this linear cause and effect thing, 
but more like, I'm going to look for possibilities. I'm going to throw some things in the environment. I'm going to see what happens. And it's going to be kind of fun. You're exactly right. It needs such a skilled craftsman because you can most definitely see that someone who's less adept, less empathetic might set about these things and really clumsily introduce something that just isn't land. So, you know, attribute not only to the empathetic mind that creates those ideas and that creates that entrepreneurial sense of connection, but also the exquisite expertise to, to deliver that with capability. So, look, nicely said. Yeah, so it's look, incredible. You, you're able to witness that firsthand. Tell me, you, you describe a little bit about Pixar, and you know, I think I think we're all very familiar with Pixar and the track record of success of Pixar. Describe to me what's it like walking into a place like Pixar. Does it emanate a sense of of creativity from the building? Is the building constructed to to create these connections? Yes, it does. There's energy. It's really interesting. You know, people say Steve Jobs' greatest creation was the iPhone. I think it was his second greatest because the Pixar atrium is something that he put a ton of time into. He was, of course, uh, part of the founding group of Pixar with Ed Catmull and John Lasseter. Um, this atrium, you walk in and it's sort of right there in front of you. You see a, a big outside is the famous lamp. You walk in, there's a giant Lego sculpture of Woody and I think some others. And then you, you go into this atrium, which is this beautiful, airy space. There's, there's tables. Um, and interestingly, I think they put the restrooms kind of together at the far end. To, and it's all designed to create collisions. It's like this collision machine. They had a moment early on where people were leaving the building to go eat elsewhere. And they had this realization, wait a minute, these collisions that happen in this room are our most important asset. We're a creative company. We need to have these continual conversations and continually looping and bumping like sort of like noodles in a pasta pot, right? We're just, we just want people to kind of boil and simmer and, and bounce off each other. And that's how they built the building. And so you feel that when you're in there, you feel this buzz of energy. And which is kind of ironic because for vast stretches of the building, it's they're they're kind of a tech company, right? What do they do? They put lines of code onto a screen that build things that render um, graphics. They're a graphics company, but they're able to continually keep that because of the way they design the space. And the other thing they have, like a lot of great cultures, they they're always sort of capturing artifacts, right? There's things on the walls, early sketches of their first the first things, the really primitive animations that they did continually seeking to sort of tell their story and remind people of where they came from. Their biggest challenge when you talk to Ed Catmull now is that people walk in and they just think, well, I'm at Pixar. Things are smart here. Things are great here. We're going to make great stuff together. And that is a horrible, very difficult place to start because the fact is creative works really hard no matter where you are. There's this sort of sense that we have about culture where we sort of assume great cultures operate on a higher plane, that, that there's no arguments, every idea is a great one, and every, every, every draft is really good. And the truth is precisely the opposite. Like Great cultures are great because they are always turning toward the hard stuff, turning toward the problem, realizing that first draft is terrible, um, and we need to completely rebuild it. How are we going to do that? And they don't turn away from the problems. We talked about a holy grail before. There's sort of a holy grail element here where it's you need to build relationships strong enough to disagree with them and to fight out and let the best idea win. And that's actually what they're great at. Um, they're great at having these arguments in, the con in this safe, high-belonging context where they can take a, a movie and give it to their brain trust. And the brain trust can say, 
man, you got a long way to go. This is not good. And they can actually be heard. And the movie can gradually, as Ed Catmull says, go from suck to not suck. Tell me this, because one thing that's so fascinating about that, you talk about the importance of speaking up and the importance of cultures that, that permit speaking up. And the one thing that Pixar seem to have done, and they've they pretty much packaged it up and handed it to Disney as well, um, is this brains yeah. trust and story trust at, at Disney, which systematizes speaking yeah. up. I wonder if you could just give us an insight. Did yeah. you did you get the opportunity to observe it, or did you observe any of the consequences of it? Yeah, they're very they're very they're very close. They don't like other people in there. It's a very closed system. But I, they have another version of it where they will call it plussing, which is when uh, they will show a draft of a movie to the entire group. The entire group, right, gets to see the draft and gets to offer comments. And those comments are called pluses because you're they don't want to frame them. They're framing them as a positive thing. And I met a guy who he had a very small job. I mean, he wasn't sweeping the floors, but he wasn't too far off it. And he had made a suggestion that the filmmakers had followed. Uh, it was a medal on the movie Up. There's a Boy Scout, and the Boy Scout has a series of medals. And he had a visual joke that he suggested for the types of medals to use. And I forget what it was. But, but there he was having a sort of very ancillary job at Pixar. He watches the movie. He raises his hand. Words come out of his mouth. And those words get translated into a movie that is seen by millions and millions of people. And he sees that. That's what voice is, right? People talk about safety as if safety is the goal. Safety is not the goal. Voice is the goal. And so building systems that ensure, support, share that voice is, is what places like Pixar do really, really well. And it's a place where other people fall down, where they think, oh, we're just supposed to create safety and belonging. That's We're done. You're not done. You're not done until the weakest person in the room says something brave and accurate before everybody else. Oh, that's so interesting. So do you think we've lost some degree of that through being on Zoom hangouts with 30 people? What's your perspective of that? Yeah, completely. It's very difficult to speak up in that in that mind. And that's why this, this leadership bar, this bar for leadership behaviors keeps going up because now the leader's got to say, hey, um, intern, I'd love to hear from you on this. And maybe even give the intern a warning that he's going to mm. be called on during the, during the meeting. And to focus on... The other sort of way to adapt to this is to really model fallibility over and over again and to continually say these, and we really need your help here. What am I missing here? You need to over-communicate fallibility to, to, make it, to make it safe. And, you know, there's a saying, you know, that leaders should, should not shoot the messenger that's, that's, as Amy Edmondson at Harvard points out, that's not enough. Like, it's actually not enough not to shoot them. It's really important in this day and age, especially with this, you know, these virtual ways we're interacting, to actively thank the messenger of hard news. Thank you for sharing that with me. That is, it's really important that I know that. Um, and in a virtual environment, all of those things need to be overdone because the virtual environment sort of dampens the human signal that is that is coming through. It's one thing... For someone to say that in real life, that's another thing to be said virtually. So amplifying that fallibility signal is a, is a key skill. I've spent a lot of time reading your stuff and listening to your stuff, and, and I end up sort of thinking that, you know, the currency of culture, from what you say, is elite-level communication. It's the ability to communicate. And the interesting thing is that the, we've ended up, in the course of the last two years, believing that we've been doing more communication than ever before. You know, the amount of meeting time and video time has gone up exponentially. But it's kind of, we've created communication noise, but we haven't 
communicated effectively between us, you know, the difference between message sent and message received. Just intriguing that, you know, if I'm hearing what you're saying, these grounds for people to think that actually creating good cultures is still going to be possible. It's actually going to be even more of a differentiator before. But the skills that are required are really honing our communication skills and being honest about when we're communicating and when we're literally just you know logged into the zoom call because that isn't communication that's that's just being online it's just really interesting to to perceive the expertise seems to sit in elite level communication i love that i I think that's a perfect frame these people they're elite communicators and and they're also i would add elite learners you know that's that's the piece i would add to it where they're continually looking at their communication and everything else to say did what could I have done better? What what didn't land there? Why are why are all everyone's cameras turned off during the Zoom call? What do we need to do now? What do we need to do now? And and this this you know it's it's not merely there's an interesting distinction between things that are complicated and things that are complex. Um, you know, complicated things have kind of a linear cause and effect, and you can sort of do A and expect B, right? It's like building an engine. You, you give me a plan, or some expert uh, can put it together. Um, but complex things aren't like that. You know, complex things are more like raising a child. Everything you do affects the system. It's not linear. Good leaders have to be kind of complexity athletes in a way. Like they have to say, well, that didn't work, but that also changed the system. Now, what what can we try over here? What can we try over here? What direction should we go here? And it becomes much more subtle, much more nuanced, much more, in a word, complex, because that's the kind of leadership skill set. This this sort of high level learning, high level of communication, high level of reflection. I would say too, to be able to navigate these very very complex organisms that are our entities, our groups. There's going to be no shortage of people right now who are back at the office a couple of days a week or three days a week, and they're they're thinking things don't feel the same, a bit like that email I read there, and they're trying to fashion the way to make things feel more connected, fashion the way to, to make their culture better. And look, you've just written this whole book, stroke workbook, which invites people to sort of commit ideas to paper to think about these things. If you were going to help someone right now, what are the two or three questions they need to be asking? What are the two or three actions that they might consider taking first? Where would you start just to round us off? Yeah, I guess I would start, I, I would sort of start with the reflection piece. Think about where you are and, and where you want to go as a group, as an individual, and, and try to build. What, what habits of reflection do you have? Uh, uh, that would be one question to ask yourself, because that's going to be a skill, your ability to pause, zoom out, um, make decisions, see the landscape clearly as a group and as an individual is going to be really important. For more sort of simple tactical suggestions, this is a kind of a silly one, but it is, I think it's meaningful. Uh, Keep an open face. You know, the the face is like a door. It has two settings. It can be open. uh, It can be closed. We know what closed looks like. We're intent. uh, Our our attention is a narrow spotlight. And open is is broad attentiveness. The frontalis muscle is your forehead muscle. And that might be the most important muscle on your body when it comes to creating culture, especially in virtual worlds, because it's how it has no, this muscle has got no evolutionary use except social signaling. It's how we signal excitement, interest, engagement. You know, if you think of the leaders, think of the faces of the leaders you admire. Are they open or closed? And pay attention to the signals you're sending. Um, 
The second thing I would say is send the two-line email. The two-line email is an email use. It's an idea from Laszlo Bach, who used to head up people analytics at Google. Um, tell me one thing I should keep doing. You send it to your team. One thing I should keep doing, and please tell me one thing I should stop doing. You know, short email, big signal. Um, and the third thing I would say is make the habit of doing an AAR. An AAR is an after-action review. It's an idea that originated in the military but has broad, broad application. It's sort of the one thing, I think. If there was one thing from the book for people to do, I might suggest that. It's after you finish doing something as a group, get together and ask these questions. What went well? What didn't go well? And what will we do differently next time? They're, they're kind of hard meetings to have because they, they, they sort of put a spotlight on where people might have screwed up, on where people might have did well. And it creates the, a hard but very productive conversation that gives you a sort of a shared landscape, where we're going together, what we're learning. Mm. And that, having a simple, short, five-minute AAR at the end of something, that's the kind of cultural calisthenic that makes groups stronger. It's a little painful, but just like physical exercise, like our social groups are not that different from our bodies. Like the pain creates the gain. And if you have that pain of like, oh, I'm going to have to admit that I kind of screwed that up and they're going to do the same. And I'm going to talk about where I think they could have been better. That's a painful conversation a little bit, but it's, it brings you closer. Think about your best friends in your life. Are they people that you're never vulnerable with? Or are they the people that you're the most open with? So mm. that same dynamic works in our groups. And I guess the, the secret of all of that is that, you know, there's no point entering into all of these things unless you're willing to act on the harsh feedback you're going to get. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's a learned call and response. If, if people tell you hard truths and then you pretty much ignore it, then of course, you know, they're not going to do it next time. That's right. That's right. And, and, the, and those hard truths, it's interesting. Over time, it becomes just like physical exercise. It actually gets kind of easier. You start to crave it. You know, when you're in a good culture, there's sometimes where people will, you know, approach you and say, you know, really, you push me on this. Like, what, help me out. What am I missing? And, and, and you begin to really enjoy those moments where someone comes to you and says, hey, here's a gap you can fill. And, and that, that can be a really thrilling experience, as opposed to the other experience where everyone protects your status and protects your reputation and, and doesn't dare like offer you anything that could make you better. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, to pick your brains and to, to try and catch up on exactly what's gone on and the way we can rethink about this. Dan, it's, it's been such an honor to chat to you. Thank you. And, and uh, best of luck with the new book because at this time when everyone's looking for new pointers, it's, uh, it's a very practical guide to thinking about just those tactical things that can have a small impact on, and, and in aggregate can have a big impact on the way we do our jobs. So thank you so much. Well, you're having a big impact on the world, Bruce, and I'm, I'm grateful for the conversation and thanks for your, your great question and your great conceptualizing of this stuff. You're so good at navigating this landscape. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to Dan. And like I say, Dan's the author of a brand new book, The Culture Playbook. You can uh, find a link for that in the show notes. If you are interested in workplace culture, then in three weeks time, there's a really nice announcement coming here where you can get a hold of some incredible exclusive content uh, completely free. So if you're not signed up to the newsletter, I'd strongly recommend you, you follow the link in the show notes, sign up for Make Work Better because there's going to be a great offer coming your way. 
In the meantime, I've been Bruce Daisley. Feel free to link into me and I'd love, love it if you could share this with friends or colleagues who are interested in the same theme. Thank you for your company today. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.